Welcome back. Really good to see you. We're finishing a, a series of messages we've been doing since Christmas under the title We Are Emmanuel, where we've looked at some of the core values that we hold to as a church, some of the, the things that make us us, if you know what I mean. And so we're, we're finishing them today. Next uh, week, we're getting into new things. So uh, I want to talk to you about worship today. That's the, that's the theme. It's a vast subject. You can't really cover it in a sermon, but you can talk about some of the, the core elements to it. So that's what we'll try and do. And to, to do that, I want to look at First Peter, and I'm going to read to you from chapter 2 and go from verse 2 to verse 10. So 1 Peter 2, verses 2 to 10. This is what it says. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So four things about worship is my plan, four different items. It's a different sermon than usual because I'm trying to really do almost four mini sermons. Um, but I, I trust they'll all stand together in terms of how they cover the basic subject of worship. I want to talk to you about worship as Worship as desire being expressed. That's really one of the most important things. Worship expresses desire. Uh, it's, it's very important we get that first because the, the way that we have been teaching over these last few weeks, we've been giving you a lot of information about our kind of clear commitments, perhaps our position on a few things, uh, the teaching of the Bible on a few subjects, and I suppose the possibility is that we could agree in principle to some of the teaching of the Bible and agree basically with, yeah, I agree with where we stand as a church, but without worship, things can remain in the category of simple agreement. Uh, assent, you know, a certain kind of belief. Yeah, I, I believe those things. Yes, I, I think that they're probably true. Yes, I, I take the Bible and I think, yes, I think the Bible is basically true. I think what the Christianity teaches is true. But worship, worship is about our desire. 
It's about what we want. It's about what motivates us. It's about what we, we long for. And the reality is we, we can't help being creatures of desire. It's the way we're made. It's the way we're wired. We, we, we are created to desire things. We, we're different in that respect than, than the other creatures. You know, I, I noticed that animals don't, don't seem to have the same tendency to desire spiritual things. They're not uh, even self-aware in the same way that, that we, humans who bear God's image, are. I, I bought my daughter, my youngest daughter, a, a hamster for Christmas after steady pressure from her. And uh, I thought, you know, that might appease her. By the way, it doesn't work. It hasn't worked at all. Uh, even though she loved the hamster, she, she wasn't appeased. She's already at me for the next size animal that she wants. I thought, you know, if I give her a hamster, it will be, you know, basically keep the, keep the house steady, you know, or basically keep things from going further. But it's a bit like trying to appease a dictator. She's like, no, I, thank you for Czechoslovakia. Now I want Poland. Now, now I want a dog. And uh, I'm not so keen on dogs generally. They're, they're, they're good out there in the woods and that sort of thing in the house. I've got five kids, got plenty, plenty on my hands for more things like that. I know that some of you love dogs, and I, I kind of love them too, but n not in the house. But anyway, before we get into that, the, 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 the hamster thing, yeah, I, I, notice, I noticed that my daughter, uh, unappeased as she is, she was, she was moved to tears on Christmas Day, literally. She was, she was, she, it was just beautiful watching her. She was overwhelmed with joy about this hamster because it's met a deep desire in her. It's this sense of longing for something. and it, I noticed that the hamster, Cookie by name, uh, I would say his emotional response was not quite symmetrical with hers. He didn't show any kind of excitement or passion and hasn't really shown any since. There's no deep sense of affection and bonding. I, I can quite see. Um, I can see that he's, he's interested in things he can rub his teeth on and, and usually human fingers. Um, there's, there's, yeah, it's not a... It's not a it's not a profound, deep relationship. I know that could happen more with, with you know, higher mammals and so on, but still, humans stand out a little. Partly, like I say, from the fact that Joni, she still longs for more. You know, this, 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 I'm sort of satisfied, but I, I, I want, I want this, this kind of pet now. I want this, I want this. And there are desires in us that, that even when we meet them, even after perhaps uh, long seasons of waiting and, and training and hoping and longing, we, we might get the thing we hope for and then realize mm, it's still not quite met the need. And, and we're creatures of deep desire. It's the way we're made. And so simply to believe the right things, that in itself is, is not necessarily going to change us. Simply to, to believe the right things in a kind of cold, I suppose, intellectual, cerebral way alone. The Bible says in, in the book of James that even the devil believes Christianity in a sense. He believes, yeah, believes in the, the God of the Bible, believes that he's there and trembles. <laughs> in other words, the devil doesn't like him, just, just believes him. You can believe this book and still in your heart not love him, not, re not choose him, still reject him. And so when we talk about worship, we're talking about more than mental ascent. We're talking about our desires, talking about the posture of our heart. What do we long for? You can see it in the, the way that Peter speaks in the verses I, I read to you. For example, verse 
3. If indeed, he's talking about Christians here, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Tasted that the Lord is good. That's Peter's definition of a Christian. Somebody who has tasted that the Lord is good. He doesn't say, if you have come to accept the Apostles' Creed, important though that is. If you have read your Bible, important though that is. If, you, if you've accepted the basic teachings of Jesus, yeah, important though that is. He's, he puts it somehow more experientially. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, <laughs> you've tasted him. And, and it's very hard to persuade somebody that something tastes good. It's very hard even to describe the taste of something, isn't it? I, I suppose one of, the, one of the great theologians of a couple of hundred years ago, Jonathan Edwards, said it right when he, he talked about the, the whole point I'm making, that the Bible often urges us to taste, like it says in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not deduce and conclude that the Lord is good, taste. Taste and see. And, and Edward said, when you try to explain the taste of honey, try doing it. Try describing exactly how it tastes. And you might get quite far. You might even do quite a good job. But really, there's no substitute for the actual experience, the actual knowledge of it by tasting. The Bible repeatedly invites us into that level of knowledge. And it's that level of knowledge that will change the heart. See, we, we, especially, I guess, in the, in the kind of modernist Western world, you know, since the Enlightenment of a few centuries back, we've, we've tended to quite often think, and still people do think this way, that, that really humans are basically kind of brains in a vat. That's what we are. We're, we're just rational creatures. There's a writer called Steven Pinker who's well-known for lots of uh, clever, insightful books, recently written a whole book trying to argue this point again. It's, a, it's an old idea, but he's kind of rehashed it, that, 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 that humankind needs to, to live in the, the legacy of the Enlightenment. We need to be rational creatures. We are rational creatures. As soon as we get sort of uber-rational, as soon as we fit into our reasonableness and become argue everything carefully, scientifically, rationally, we will flourish and prevail as the human race. But it's, it's surely easy to see the weaknesses of that point of view because really, if we're honest, we've got to accept that we're not just rational. I'm not saying we're, we're less than rational. No, 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 we definitely, Pink is right. We're, there's something extraordinary about human beings. Again, it makes us different than the animals. We, we have this ability to reason and to, to use logic, which is amazing. It sets us apart, again, from, from the, the beasts. But, but it doesn't go the whole way because reason, being rational, is only part of how we're made. And the Bible would teach that reason is a gift from God. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's a gift. It's a wonderful thing that we can organize our thoughts and persuade scientifically and use logic. But the fact is that somebody can believe and understand and accept everything and still their heart can be completely unchanged. That's why not only have individuals who have been quite scientifically and rationally advanced still been wicked people, but even whole nations have been. Whole cultures and societies have done unbelievably wicked things, in spite of being apparently rather advanced scientifically. No, 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 the heart has to be appealed to. The heart has to be targeted. The heart has to change. And when we talk about worship, we're talking about that. We're talking about 
our desires, our yearnings, the things we long for, the things that we see as tasty, <laughs> desirable, delicious, gorgeous, attractive. If we see worship as something I, I, said, I worship because I ought to, because it's what Christians ought to do, it won't be from the heart. It won't even be true worship. Worship is, is almost, it's almost a spontaneous thing. Certainly, it's something that, that can even sometimes seem involuntary. We're just drawn. Happens to me sometimes at a football stadium. Just you know, moments I can be sitting there looking very middle class and educated and almost bored. And suddenly, without even expecting it, you know, something happens on the pitch and it draws from me a completely visceral response. I'm out of my seat yelling. And you know, gesticulating and, and not rudely or anything like that, and not negatively, not against the ref or the others, just, just applauding my team. Can't, can't help it. Why? Because my heart's been won. I'm impressed. I'm responding to something that I've seen that just stirs me and wins me, and it, and it appeals to me on a desire level. And we can't get past that. And the reality is that the reason that people will reject God, for example, They'll often think it's because, well, I just, it doesn't appeal to, I, I, I see the weaknesses in Christianity. I think it's unreasonable. I think Christianity is completely unreasonable. Well, yeah, let's discuss it. Maybe it is, you know, let's, let's at least debate it. No, I don't want to debate it. Well, why not? Well, I, I, I'm busy. Surely it's worth investigating to be able to prove that it's unreasonable. But why don't you do an alpha course? Why don't you look at your Bible? Why don't you read John's Gospel? Why don't you, let's discuss it. No, 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 no. Well, what's going on there? I reckon what's going on there is the real motive. The real motive is desire to get away from God, to get away from the God of the Bible. And we're driven more by our emotions and our longings and our affections and our heart than we are by truth. And certainly we are driven more by it than we realize. Because the heart needs to be changed. I mean, this is the way, the way Paul talks earlier on in the New Testament when he describes the, the real problem that we all have, the real problem with humanity. He says in Romans chapter 1, he says this, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's, that's his way of describing our problem. Our rejection of God is actually the thing that makes our minds go wrong. Worship affects your mind. What you worship gets into your brain. If you're not worshipping the God of the Bible, you're still worshipping. You can't not worship. It's like not breathing. It's part of being human. You'll yearn for things. You'll desire things. You'll hope for things. You'll set your meaning in life upon things. You will. You can't not do that any more than you can not breathe. It's just part of your humanity. The problem is what we give our hearts to is not God. It's anything but God anything but God and so our lives are changed and Paul says claiming to be wise we become fools we make dumb decisions we do things that are in fact irrational because we've gone against truth in our heart of hearts and made up all kinds of arguments to try and make ourselves feel good about our decision later on in the same book in Romans when he's explained God's great powerful plan for rescuing humanity and changing our hearts he says this in Romans 12 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In fact, the word is reasonable worship in the original language. <laughs> it's interesting. He it says it's like God, by helping you to be changed on the inside, your, your, your reason is returned to you. Your ability to see things as true or false, your, your, your spiritual eyesight is renewed when you meet God. When your heart is changed, your mind is renewed and you're transformed and you see things right. Through what? Through worship, through encountering God and orienting your life around him. So what am I saying? Well, I'm saying amongst other things that our biggest problem is our worship problem. That's the biggest problem we have. I, I know that there will be countless other problems in this room, in your life alone. I know there, there are many problems. Some of them you've brought with you today and you're wrestling with them and you're turning them over in your mind. They may be distracting you as I speak. There's lots of things in our lives that clamor for our attention and rob us of our peace and cause us to think, where is God? What's going on in my life? What do I do? But I'm here to tell you, you have a bigger problem still you have a greater problem than even those. The biggest problem you face, and actually probably the root to most, if not all of them, is your passionate commitment to other gods rather than the true God. And your, your deep suspicion that the God of the Bible doesn't taste good. I haven't tasted that he's good. I don't want the taste of this God. I refuse him. Rather like my kids when they refuse the taste of, of something that I know is good. <laughs> I've lived long enough to taste different things. And this, you trust me, this is good. This is better than fish fingers. This is better. But no, children can just, they're not, their taste buds just see it as rancid. And I appeal to you to rethink what might be beautiful, glorious, attractive. Because actually to see God for who he is, to see his beauty, to be drawn again and drawn maybe for the first time by how lovely he is, how trustworthy he is, and how you can put your whole life in his hands and see your problems from a completely different vantage point and find peace, actual peace, maybe peace you've never ever felt before and longed for all your life. It would change you completely. It would, it would set your life up differently. But you need to be sure of that. You need, you need to have your desires changed. And how does that happen? Well, let me just quickly touch on the second of these four points. It kind of fits in as a, as a sequence here. Worship is uh, about desire being expressed. It's also a response. Worship is a response to revelation. Worship is a response. You see... We, we, left to ourselves, we will worship whatever, whatever seems attractive to us, whatever gets our attention, whatever wins our heart, whatever wins your heart, whoever you are in this room, watching this in Shoreham or at the race course or in Hove, whoever you are, whatever wins your heart, you will worship. And so God designs ways of winning our hearts. God, God finds his way. 
to change our heart, to bring revelation, to show us in a way that we, we can't ignore. Perhaps we might set up kind of spiritual cataracts around our eyes, but God has a way of removing them. God has a, a way of giving us the spiritual eyesight that we need so that we can see his worth and his beauty, his, his glory, his, his preciousness. It's, it's even the word that Peter uses. You, you get down into verse 4, for example. As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, a living stone rejected by men. By the way, it's worth pausing on, rejected by men. Maybe we have a tendency to see Jesus as you know, everyone's favorite spiritual leader and you know, the kind of first century Russell Brand. Everyone likes Jesus. He's kind of, yeah, we, we, we know Jesus. We like Jesus. We wouldn't reject Jesus. If Jesus was here, we, he would be one of us, wouldn't he? Jesus would be one of us. Jesus would be so down with it in Brighton. Brighton would love Jesus. Peter says, rejected by men. And Peter knew. Peter saw it happen. Peter was there. He knows what we're like with Jesus. He was there on Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday was the day when the crowds lined the streets. Jesus rode into town on a donkey back to David's city of Jerusalem, crowds waving their palm branches, putting their, their garments on the floor for him to ride on. What a welcome, what adulation, what a popular king he was going to be. Within days, within less than a week, the same crowd are shouting, crucify him. That's, that's the human heart. We might kid ourselves, oh, we love Jesus. No, Peter knows too much rejected by men the normal human response to Jesus when we really get to know what he wants and what he desires is to resist so he goes on to say you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious God sees things right yeah if there's any being in the universe who see things straight who see things clear it doesn't have spiritual cataracts. It's God. What does God say about his son? <sighs> Chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. He sees him as precious. Do you see Jesus as precious? Have you seen his beauty? Have you seen his glory, his majesty? Have you understood the appeal? Has he won your heart? This is, this is what needs to happen to us. This is why uh, later on he talks about us being those who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light that's what has to happen to me and you i would not love jesus my friend i wouldn't if he hadn't shown himself to me if i hadn't understood his beauty if light hadn't burst in on darkness and that's what you need that's my prayer for everyone here worship will only happen as a response to revelation and so we need to have him revealed to us and that happens in all kinds of ways. For some of you, maybe that happens here today. I see glimpses of Jesus when I read this book, when I hear teaching from the Bible, when I, just, just basic things, and this is so practical. Do you want to worship God? You need to get revelation of him. You need to see his goodness. You need to spend time gazing at him. That means getting to grips with what the, the Bible teaches about him. It means listening. It means understanding. It means spending time thinking on him. Thinking on him. What do you give your mind to? What do you think about in your spare time? What do you think about when, you, when you've got downtime, when you're unwinding? 
learn to, to gravitate towards the one who is most precious in God's sight. God the Father knows what is precious, and he says, Jesus, my chosen and precious one. Have you seen him as such? Have you understood his preciousness? It's so different than what you might expect. You see, you might think I'm talking about just having religion, just having lots of religious information in your mind. Listen, the people who crucified him had lots of religious information in their mind. I'm not talking about just a general idea of God. These guys did God. Big time. They thought they were putting him on the cross for God. But they had no idea what God was like. No idea of God's ways. No idea of God's mercy and grace and majesty. No real idea of God's closeness and willingness to be closer still to them. No idea. They rejected it when they saw him coming. Didn't want to know. I'm not talking about just religious information. I'm talking about a person who uniquely satisfies, a person who, who comes to us from the heaven of heavens and is born in a stable and walks our road in the humblest way. And when it's time to wash the feet, he's the one that puts the towel around his waist and gets the, the, the bowl and, and starts getting messy with our feet taking on the posture of a servant, a bondservant, a slave. This one who walked the streets of Galilee and Judea and had time for, it seems, everybody, even the people no one else had time for. This one who, when a leper, who had never had anyone probably look him in the eye for years. People backing off, treating him with terror and shame. Even his family, I imagine approaches Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. If you are willing, you can heal me. Jesus says, oh, I am willing. I am willing. Jesus is always surprising the people in this book because he's nothing like what they would have expected. You think you know what God's like? You think you can imagine God? You will always be surprised because he comes to us and blows our minds. He blows my mind every, every time I think I failed him too much. Every time I think, I, I've, I'm so weak. I'm so, why would you bother with a person like me? I'm a pastor and I fail as a Christian. I can't be, I can't be good enough for you. This, this, this God, I've, I've surely got to the end of the road. I am always surprised. I'm always amazed at how much love he has for me. How gracious and tender he is but not in a kind of sappy way as, as if to sort of lower the standard and make it unimportant that I succeed or not. Far from it. He comes to live inside me. He transforms me. He brings me hope. He gives me ambition and drive. He says, come, I'm calling you to do great things. I've got a plan for your life. He turns up for you at your weakest, most cowardly points, and he says, arise, great warrior, great man, great woman. I've got plans for your life. This is what Jesus is like. Do you understand what he's like? If you begin to see it, worship becomes something a little more natural. And this is such an important thing because we, we always want to help in Emmanuel, keep worship away from just a kind of a, I suppose, a sort of mixture of adrenaline rush and, and kind of self-effort where we're just trying to worship 
really got to worship. I really should worship God. And sometimes it can be a little driven, even in meetings, where we can say, well, it's, now it's time to worship. Let's worship God. Come on, let's worship. I've been in some meetings over the years, thankfully not here. And not, I, you know, I believe as a church we've tried to teach away from this. But, but in some contexts it can feel like this, where worship becomes something, nothing to do with revelation. There's nothing to respond to. We're just being told, worship. Come on, let's, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's, now, now let's all really worship. And it, it's, it's, it's sometimes necessary to, to appeal to people. But if that's all there is, if it's just a driven kind of frenzy of, let's really worship, let's really be spiritual, my friend, you'll end up, you're going to be in trouble. People will reject that for a start. But the ones who don't reject it, they'll, they'll kind of feel, I suppose I'm supposed to worship. But who? What, what, why? What, what is it to respond to? No, worship should be something that's drawn out of us by revelation. You see he's worthy. We see his goodness. We see his beauty. And it draws us, perhaps even to our own surprise, draws us to a place of worship and response. And this is... Uh, this is not to say that we don't respond wholeheartedly when we do see it. I say that because in, in kind of Brightonian culture, there'd also be the, the tendency for, for many of us to think, well, spirituality in general is a very personal thing. It's a very cerebral thing. It's a mindful thing. It's a private thing. It's a secret thing. I worship... On my own, I worship when I'm walking. I worship at a sunset. I worship in the woods. I, I worship when I'm looking at a, a piece of art. I, I, that's where I engage with spiritual things. By all means, do that. I'm not saying it's wrong at all. But we can sometimes imagine that's somehow real spirituality when gathering with other believers is, nah, that's not really for me. I don't really do that stuff. I'm, I'm not so public about it. This is a personal thing. Where are you going if you think that way? Where you're going is not, is not actually to think biblically. It's not even to think as God thinks. You're thinking really more in kind of the, the context of Western, perhaps Greek philosophy legacy from ancient Greek philosophy, where we, we kind of despise the physical side of things and we, we see the only important things are the conceptual things of the mind, abstract concepts. These are the only things that really matter. And so worship becomes very sort of just sort of self, just self-contained. Even when we come to a meeting and we gather with other Christians, we kind of feel a little bit superior to those people who are expressing themselves physically. We might even think, well, that's not for me. I wouldn't do that. I'm, I'm properly spiritual, which means I never show it. So other people, they can wave their hands around, but that's just not quite right. It's a bit uncouth. My friend, you, you've got to get back to the Bible. The Bible has no problem whatsoever with the joining of the physical and the spiritual. What happens in the mind and the heart gets expressed in the body. That's why we have bread and wine. We don't just think about bread and wine. We eat and drink them. That's part of worship. We do something physical. Really? What? Is that supposed to be? Is God involved in that? Oh, for sure. You bet he is. Yeah, the physical side of worship is essential. It's part of how he responds. God made you with a body, and he's not, he's not disappointed with the decision. He's not thinking, why did I make these flipping arms? What a waste they are. All I want is just worship just to happen internally in their minds. I, I'm spiritual and they're spiritual. I just hear them internally. No, no, no. God gave you these things to raise to him, give glory to him. God gave you a voice to sing, to sing out, to not just say it, but to sing it, 
to express it, for it to come from the heart, but come out in expression. This is massively important. So be, be prepared to embrace even that side. It's a very crucial part of, of the way that God's wired us for worship. And it means that we're not involved in just a private affair. This is actually my third point. I'm already in it, but I'll name it. That worship is more than just a private thing. It doesn't stay private. Something we engage with others in. It's where he's going in verse 5, for example. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then he says over in verses 9 and 10, same sort of thing. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Friends, we are so far away from this book culturally in that sense. We will tend to think in very individualistic categories and not realize we're doing it. We don't even realize we're doing it. You know, you understand that. Most of the assumptions we make, we don't realize we're assuming it. And we come to the Bible with, with a shed load of assumptions we've never even evaluated, we've never even questioned in our minds. It's like the, 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 the parable of the two fish just kind of swimming along next to each other and another fish coming the other direction says, hi guys, how's the water? And the two fish kind of just carry on swimming and one says to the other, what the hell is water? Because when you're in, you grow up in water, you don't even notice it. You've grown up in a culture which is completely individualistic. Everything is about us in our little personal cubicle of life. This book was written in a world where people belong to one another. Or you do life together. You partner together. You're in family together. You, you affect one another in the decisions you make. And you just, it's just reality. If you become a Christian, you became part of a new temple, a living stone, as he says. You're part of something now. So worship must be a corporate affair. It's a group thing. It's a family thing. When we worship together, we're being Christian. When we worship on our own, yeah, you're being Christian there too. But if you only worship on your own, my friend, you're missing out. Not just missing out. You're, you're not even being a true Christian in a sense. You're, you're, you're kind of you're trying to be a married bachelor. It can't be done. Christian is someone who, who gathers with Christians, just is. I'm saying this as if you guys are all guilty of it. You're all here, so I don't know why you're yelling at you. I'm yelling at you people watching at home. <laughs> Cut it out. Come to church. It's very important. So I'm, I'm deadly serious because the, the, he uses that word priest. Did you notice? We're a royal priesthood. We're a nation of priests. That, that's a big subject, too rich to unpack in a second. But let me just say this about it. A priest is not just someone who has their own access to God, which is a delightful gift. <laughs> to have your access to God through Jesus' blood on the cross for you. A priest is someone who also is able to bring others through their own priesthood into access to God. So what that means is when we gather, we gather, each one of us who know Jesus Christ, we gather as God's people and we're able to help others we're able to be priests unto one another in all kinds of ways. The priesthood of all believers is really, really significant when it comes to Sundays and small groups and because I gather with people who are representing God to me. My brothers and my sisters, I can go to a church meeting thinking the last thing I want to be at is a church meeting. That will often happen to you. You will often think... The last thing I want to do right now is go to church. I don't think I'm going to church. I think that's the last thing I want to do. My friend, when it's the last thing you want to do, it's most likely the thing you most need to do. 
the fact you don't want to, I, I hear that. That's not always, that's, that's painful. I get that. I know it's painful to sometimes, have, especially if you're an introverted person. It's like, do I really need to be around people right now? Sometimes just to be around God's people will be healing for your soul in ways you don't even know about. You can't even anticipate. You can't imagine what difference it will make just to be around brothers and sisters and have them just, some of them, just by smiling at you, just by praying with you, just by sharing your burden with you, just by preaching from the Bible to you, just by singing with you about Jesus and how good he's been. It's not just that it gives you a bit of an emotional lift. It gives you a whole different perspective. It changes everything. But we get that by being together, not by being in our cubicles throughout our lives. So gather. It's not meant to stay private. And then finally, the, the Christian life is all about proclaiming the good news to other people. But does that include worship times? Does that mean that when we gather and worship together as a church, that's about proclaiming to other people? I thought this was just for us Christians. I don't believe that. I believe that when we gather to worship, we get to proclaim the good news. And that's my fourth point. Worship proclaims the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. When, when Paul says it later on in this, this passage here, he talks about us being a chosen people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. He, he's saying something profound. I, I love that verse. Because he's saying, you've been chosen by God to know him so that you can proclaim him. He's calling you to himself so that you can call others to himself. And how do you do that? Well, I suppose it's by going out to them outside of meetings and telling them about Jesus. Go out to the highways and byways. Go to my neighbors. Go to my colleagues. Go to my friends. Go to my relatives and tell them about Jesus. Amen. You do that. Absolutely. Please do that. But hear me. One of the best ways you can do that is by inviting them into church bringing them to the gathering of God's people. Why? Because when we gather together, we proclaim en masse. We proclaim big time. We proclaim on steroids when we're gathered. To gather as God's people and sing and lift him up and hear preaching from his word and see demonstrations of the kingdom at the prayer tables or when, we're, when people are praying for one another after us. All these different ways reach out to people's hearts. The reality is, friends, that hundreds and hundreds of people over the years have got to know Jesus in this room. And they will carry on doing that. And in other rooms, in Shoreham, in, in your race course, in, in Hove, and other places beyond. Why? Because there's something potent about God's people gathering to celebrate Jesus. It proclaims something demonstrate something and people are there and they say I'm, I'm coming to know this Jesus just as you have done maybe that's going to be your story here today maybe in a moment when we take bread and wine and celebrate Jesus as we stand in a moment and bring our worship in song to him I hope that for some of you here today and some of you watching this at the other sites this will be the moment where you in your heart can say I'm seeing his beauty I'm seeing his goodness and I hope that happens every Sunday. That's what this city needs so much. It needs gatherings of God's people 
We need to have more than four sites in this city as a church. We need to keep spreading out. We need new sites. We need new churches in new cities, not just Berlin and Amsterdam and Ottawa and Krakow. We need to keep spreading out across cities and parts of this town. Why? Because we're setting up outposts of God's, God's proclamation. When we gather, we're proclaiming to neighborhoods and towns, Jesus is worthy. Jesus is better than anything else. And when people come into contact with a community that knows that and looks like they know that, sings like they know that, it's compelling. We need to be compelled. We need to see. Maybe, maybe for some of you right now, you're seeing, you understand he's, he's worthy. And it's time for you to find your way back to God today. You're, you're seeing this Jesus, the perfect one, who came out of mercy it's not just that he died on the cross for sins in general. No, for your sins. Your very sins. The things you're most ashamed of. Things that most disqualify you. Things you feel horrendous about. Jesus said, I'll take it gladly. That's mine. I'll take it for you. On the cross. And he was buried. And then he rose to reign and rule with you, to, to build eternity for you, to plan for you, to be glorious and to be the exalted head over all things. I tell you, there's no one like Jesus. Not the tiny little plastic Jesus you've had in your brain. I'm talking about the real one. And he's extraordinary. You need to come to know him. Let's pray together right now. We're going to respond in song, but... Uh, uh, I also want to invite you, if you know Jesus Christ, to, to come to the table, take bread and wine, celebrate with us in just a moment. He offers us this meal as a way of remembering him, enjoying his real presence with us. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his body given for us. Thank you for his blood poured out. And we want to put our trust again in you and come back to you, find our way back to you, each one of us today. Enjoy all your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.